according to his promise. We are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. You may turn to Luke chapter 4 this morning. Luke chapter 4. For those of you that are very talented, at the same time you have a finger or something at Luke 4, you can also be ready to turn to Isaiah chapter 61. Luke 4 and Isaiah 61. It's one of those things where paper Bibles are not as flexible as software applications where you can put two passages side by side and in... Parable or in uh, parallel windows and be able to examine them side by side. When you're dealing with a paper Bible, you have to have it open at a particular page. But we will be set up this morning in uh, Luke chapter 4 as well as uh, first, uh, Isaiah chapter 61. All right, in preparation for the study of the Word of God this morning, let's take time for silent prayer to assure that we are, in fact, filled with the Holy Spirit and equipped to handle spiritual truth. Shall we pray? Heavenly Father, we do come before your throne of grace this morning, thankful for all of your blessings in our lives, day by day, year by year, Father, as we look back over your faithfulness and uh, just thank you so much for uh, the grace that you've supplied, the mercies that are renewed each morning, the, the privilege we have in freedom to assemble together and receive instruction. I thank you, Father, that we can have a ladies' prayer meeting, we can have a Bible class, we can meet in, uh, in a public building with a sign out front, and we're not here in fear of the government coming in and taking us away. So we just thank you again for your faithful provisions. We do not take them for granted. We recognize that they are grace provisions. And we just thank you and praise you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All right. Luke chapter 4 will be our text. Rejected at Nazareth. And I forgot to turn this off. Use this opportunity to silence your noisemakers. So that distractions do not interfere with the glory that belongs to Jesus Christ. All right. Rejected in Nazareth, Luke chapter 4, verses 16 through 30. If all we had was the Synoptic Gospels, it would appear that this is the kind of thing that immediately happened after the baptism event, after the temptation event. That uh, he goes down to the River Jordan, he's acknowledged as being the Christ. John the Baptist publicly testifies, uh, you know, behold, the Lamb of God takes away the sin of the world. Then he's rushed out to the wilderness where he can uh, engage in uh, spiritual conflict with the adversary. And then uh, verse 13 of Luke 4, when the devil had finished every temptation, he left him. Notice, until an opportune time. That's a significant phrase in uh, Luke 4:13. And uh, we recognize that the conflict with the adversary was more than just simply this one episode. And uh, and then um, 
Of course, I think people recognize it in the struggles uh, in the Garden of Gethsemane where he was wrestling in prayer, where he was sweating his great drops of blood. I think a lot of folks will assign angelic conflict to that incident as well. But in reality, there were multiple occasions where the temptations arose, where the uh, struggle was uh, quite severe. And I think every time we find that the Lord going off on his own to pray and the Lord uh, depending upon the Father's provision there, more often than not, I suspect that those were also satanic attacks in any event uh, the gospel of luke then takes us on into the return to galilee immediately verse 14 jesus returned to galilee in the power of the spirit and it seems as if that was the next step from baptism to temptation to galilee and uh, as i commented on last week we're very thankful that we have uh, been pursuing this on a harmony basis examining all four gospels harmonizing them together into one coherent life of christ series it would be helpful if you will periodically refer to your harmony of the gospels handout just to examine it and look and see for example as it's broken down by columns matthew mark luke and john it's pretty easy to spot where there are significant gaps see and if you look at just the gospel of luke column you find a very thorough uh uh development there and in terms of incidents that are recorded in luke uh in that first early section of birth infancy and adolescence of jesus and john the baptist and it's pretty telling that as you look through those 17 events it's pretty uh well detailed in luke chapter one and two but the mark and the john columns right next to those are totally blank mark and john aren't interested at all in the birth infancy and adolescence of jesus and even in the Matthew record, it's, there's a little bit there in the Matthew column, but there's good gaps there in the Matthew column and so forth. And you'll find when you look in that Luke column down here in the uh, sections below the, the uh, childhood of Christ that uh, he's got information there on truths about John the Baptist, but just very brief aspects of the beginning of Jesus' ministry and then a huge gap until the Galilean ministry, and then Luke starts to pick up the information there as well once you get down to the Galilean ministry. So the, the harmony will help you visualize these things. And if you're a visual learner like me, you'll start to really appreciate having those handouts and uh, the ability to just simply refer to them uh, when, as we go through these events. Now, the rejection. Five things we're going to glean out of this event from verses 16 through 30. Um, and we'll pick it up with the, uh, the preliminaries here in verses 14 and 15. Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit, and news about him spread through all of the surrounding district. And he began teaching in their synagogues and was praised by all. Jesus is now going, this is the first observation we're making. Jesus now undertakes his first itinerant teaching ministry. We'll use that vocabulary because it's reflective of what his ministry was like. It's somewhat reflective of how certain ministries took place um, in earlier eras of our American history, for example. You were much more likely to find itinerant preachers. You were much more likely to find uh, circuit riders, for example, uh, preachers that would travel from place to place. And they wouldn't settle down in one given place. Um, very interesting aspect of how in the westward movement of our nation, for example, how those itinerant preachers would move from place to place. 
And this is an interesting aspect of his ministry. He started off in the early portions where teaching wasn't necessarily the aspect, although we understand he was teaching, but he was involved in a baptism ministry where it was co-related with John the Baptist. And the emphasis there tended to be one more of repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. It was more of a... Uh, not a an evangelism aspect, but a revival type ministry, letting believing Jews know that the imminency of the kingdom was such that they ought to uh, repent. That is, they ought to have a change of thinking. They ought to once again get back on a spiritual uh, frame of uh, mind, a spiritual approach instead of the earthly legalism they'd been in bondage under. And uh his disciples were involved in that. It was a part of his disciples' training. They were undertaking the baptism ministry themselves. He himself was not actually laying on hands and dunking people under the water. His disciples were doing that. But the early stages of his ministry was primarily equipping his disciples in something very similar to what John the Baptist was doing. And I find that to be interesting because the Baptist had a ministry and yet it didn't end immediately when he announced the Christ. See, it would seem in one way of looking at it that the moment he baptized the Christ and, and Jesus comes out of the water and the spirit descends, then John the Baptist would retire. <laughs> he is the herald. He's the forerunner. What else is there for him to do? But the fact is, is that he does not retire. He continues in his baptism ministry. Not only that, not only does the Baptist not retire, but uh, that that form of of communication then expands because jesus trains his disciples to do the same thing and at the very least we've got uh peter andrew james and john nathaniel and and thomas or bartholomew so we got those four um or those six disciples and at the very least those are the ones involved in the baptism all right am i losing anyone are you familiar with what i'm talking about here in in john as this We've been dealing with this in, in recent classes, this baptism ministry that was taking place. And so rather than the Baptist retiring, actually, it was replicated on the part of these four disciples, six disciples, however many there were. I don't believe he had all 12 at that point. We know he didn't have Matthew. We know he didn't have some of these other ones. So I think six is probably the, the, the best understanding of it. So rather than just John the Baptist baptizing, Jesus adds his six disciples to the mix. Now there are seven baptism ministries taking place in this region because there was much water there. And all of Judea was going out there. That got the Pharisees' attention. And so John the Baptist gets arrested. Jesus and his disciples leave out of Galilee. I mean, leave out of Judea. They pass through Samaria. They enter into Galilee. It's, uh, it's an interesting thing to examine how they were publicly warning the the uh, Jewish believers there that they needed a change of thinking. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. All right. Well, that was what that ministry was all about. Once they have vacated that region, it's remarkable that they don't go back to, they don't find another river. They don't go to the Sea of Galilee. They don't, you know, find the northern stretch of the of the Jordan River. But they, rather than, uh, continue this baptism ministry and preaching the kingdom of heaven is at hand, they start a teaching ministry proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. And that becomes really an interesting transition. So this is what we look at here in terms of a teaching ministry. Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit and news about him spread through all the surrounding district. And he began teaching in their synagogues and was praised by all. All right? 
Now, a couple things I want to say with respect to this. Um, when it comes to baptizing on the one hand and teaching on the other hand, okay, let's not get so wrapped up in these two things to say, well, okay, when he was in Judea, he was baptizing. When he was in Galilee, he was teaching. And let's not get so wrapped up in it to say that they were mutually exclusive. That when he was baptizing, he never did any teaching whatsoever. Okay, that's taken it too far. I expect that he did a fair amount of teaching while that baptism ministry was going on. Probably that's what his role was while the six disciples were doing the dunking. While they were doing the actual hands-on baptisms, Jesus was teaching the significance for why this stuff was taking place. All right? The corollary to that, once they get into Galilee and they start teaching, we're not going to think that they never, ever, ever did any kind of baptism after that. See? There probably were some baptisms along the way. It's just that the, in the early stage, the, the emphasis was on the baptism. May have had some teaching with it. Probably did. In the later sense, the emphasis was primarily teaching. May have had some baptisms with it. Probably did. Okay? So let's not get wrapped up in these distinctions and say that, it, that they are so universal that we're excluding the other activity. And, can I give you some extra credit this morning? Turn to the Great Commission. Where do you find the Great Commission? How about the last verse, couple of verses here in Matthew, Matthew 28? I want you to spot something here. Because these early stages of Jesus' ministry are laying the foundation for what you and I are expected to do in the dispensation of the church. As you and I are equipped to fulfill the Great Commission. <clears throat> In verse 19, really the preliminary gets set up with Jesus came up and spoke to them saying, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. And that kind of establishes the parameters, similar to how Jesus' parameters were established, being full of the Holy Spirit and going forth to minister. And he says, go therefore and make disciples of all the nations. Now, go is not an imperative. People think of it as an imperative and they say they get all excited about missions and say, well, Jesus told me to go. I'm going to go. You know, go is not an imperative. It's an aorist participle, meaning as you go or wherever you go or wherever you are, there you are. And while you're there, this is what you should be doing. The imperative isn't go. The imperative is make disciples. We are commanded to make disciples. That's the imperative. And as you go is simply describing the um, process of wherever you go. You know, in your workplace, in your homes, in your neighborhoods, wherever you go, you are a witness for Jesus Christ. Not only for evangelizing the lost, but also for uh, exhorting the, the uh, believers that aren't walking in the word. The believer, the non-disciple believers, believers that are regenerate, but they're not students. See, the Great Commission is make disciples, not get people saved. The word evangelism isn't even in this passage. The, the verb to evangelize isn't even in this passage. The noun isn't in this passage. All right. Um, evangelism's part of it because you can't make a, an unbeliever a disciple. So clearly the first step to making a disciple is this person without Christ has to get saved. But just getting the person saved isn't the end of the story because there's plenty of saved non-disciples out there. 
Those that aren't abiding in the word of God. It says, if you abide in my word, then you are truly disciples of mine. So if we want to turn, if we want to make disciples, first of all, we have to get unbelievers saved. And then we've got to get saved people to be abiding in the word of God. That's how you make disciples. All right. Now, the primary imperative is make disciples. The aorist participle, as you go, just simply describes the conditions in which this happens. But then two other participles describe the activities you will concurrently, continuously, presently engage in that makes those disciples. And it's interesting. They're the very two activities that we've been discussing in these early ministries of Jesus Christ. He had a baptism ministry in Judea. He now undertakes a teaching ministry in Galilee. And what do we find here? Baptizing them and teaching them. Do you notice this? Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them, that's verse 19, in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them, that's verse 20, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you, and lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. So here we find the pairing of baptizing them and teaching them placed here in back-to-back verses in parallel constructions. Both of these are present active participles. All right. Uh, Baptizing them and teaching them are described as the methods in which you make disciples. Okay. Anyway, that's just extra credit. We find, as we return back now to Luke chapter 4, we have already observed that Jesus had a baptizing ministry. Now we find him engaged in a teaching ministry. And we understand that these are the fundamental elements of making disciples. These are the fundamental elements of leading people to Christ, grounding them in the Word of God, equipping them to be students of the Bible, students of the Word of God. So Jesus now undertakes his first itinerant teaching ministry. And it's interesting because the disciples were with him in Judea, the disciples were with him as they traveled to through Samaria. They went into the village, they bought food, they came back, they got chewed out for not giving the gospel while they were in there, other things. But then as soon as they cross into Galilee, what happens? It appears that these six Galilean disciples then returned home, went back to their fishing business, went back to their other pursuits and so forth. He appears to be alone in this early Galilean teaching ministry. No disciples are declared to be present at this time. Notice he, singular, began teaching in their synagogues, was praised by all. He, singular, came to Nazareth. All right. Um, it does not say, as in John 2, when he went to the wedding of Galilee, that, or in Cana, that his disciples also were with him. We don't have that kind of a statement in this context. And very quickly... After some of these things, uh, he is going to end up calling his disciples to be fishers of men. And um, by the time we get to chapter 5, verses 1 through 11, um, verse, chapter 5, verse 1 says, uh, He was standing by the lake. He saw two boats lying by the edge of the lake. Um, he got into one of the boats, which was Simon's. And so forth. And then he tells them here to be uh, to be fishers of men. Verse uh, 10. James, the son of jo- uh, James and John, sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. And Jesus said to Simon, uh, do not fear from now on. You will be catching men. 
when they had brought their boats to land, they left everything and followed him. Okay. Some people view this as being a, a contradiction. We just simply look at it and say, no, this is a harmony. That they were early disciples when they, and they were involved in that baptism training ministry. But when, they, when Jesus returned to Galilee, they went back to their fishing business. Until such time as he calls them now a second time to say, are you going to be serious about this? Are you going to follow me full time? Are you going to leave this secular career? All right. Well, we'll have that coming up under uh, the uh, fourth point of the Galilean ministry. Right now we're just dealing with the second point, the rejection at uh, Nazareth. But this is a teaching ministry where he appears to be doing this solo. He appears to be doing this without any other disciples. There are no other disciples declared to be present at this time. All right. Now we make three observations about this teaching ministry. The first of which is that it is in the power of the Spirit. In the power of the Spirit. In the power of the Spirit indicates his dependence on God's provision and not exercising his own divine essence. In the power of the Spirit. Another foreshadowing of how you and I are to fulfill our ministries in the church age. In the power of the Spirit. Any ministry you have, if it's a teaching ministry, an evangelism ministry, whatever else you're trying to do, it better be in the power of the Spirit. If you're trying to teach Sunday school, or you're trying to teach Bible class, or trying to participate in a prayer meeting, or offer encouragement to a younger woman, or whatever it is you're trying to do, don't do it in the flesh. In the power of the Spirit. This was unusual in the Old Testament. Very few believers were given the Holy Spirit. Occasionally, they, the Holy Spirit would be given to prophets, which Jesus Christ was, an Old Testament prophet. And he's ministering on that, on that basis. No miracle he does is an application of omnipotence, but it is rather a work of the Holy Spirit through him. See, Jesus cannot exercise omnipotence and still identify with us in our weaknesses. That's a very important principle. By the way, we have now wrapped up the doctrine of divine essence on Sunday mornings. And um, those notes are hot off the presses right now. If we get them sorted and stapled, you can take one with you before you leave this morning. Otherwise, we'll have the handouts available this evening or Sunday morning anytime. Ente dunamē tu numatas. In the power, standard word for power, dunamis, that we have. Oh, exit that. Ente dunamē, the standard word for power, which is dunamis, where we get our word dynamite. This is the operational power, and it's by means of, the date of case uh, describing the means in which this teaching was taken place. Not his own power, not power of sovereignty, not power of deity, but power of the Spirit to pneumatos. Power that you and I have available for us to use. How much power do we have? All power. That's a lot. <laughs> you can't even measure it because it's all of it. All right. Strengthen with all power. Through his spirit in the inner man. All right. Indicates his dependence on God's provision, not exercising his own divine essence. If you ever wanted to find a pattern to imitate here, we find it. All right. The second observation, his teaching was universally praised. His teaching was universally praised. Now, it's an interesting observation. I 
as we read it just a moment ago, he began teaching in their synagogues and was praised by all. Doxazamenos hupapantone. And it's remarkable in terms of the fact that um, it is worthy of praise. Only God is worthy of praise, but since he has magnified his word in accordance with his own name, his word is also worthy of praise. And as Jesus Christ is sending forth the word of God, it is worthy to be praised. We want to recognize, though, that sometimes human beings will praise people for wrong reasons. (laughs) They will praise people in the sense of wanting to flatter them. They will praise people in the the, um, sense of... uh, um, wanting something from them. They will praise people just simply for the sake of, of the fact they've been dazzled by something. They've been impressed by something. Okay? And that's a, uh, that's a snare. You've got to recognize that the same people that are praising you today may be calling for your crucifixion tomorrow, which happens very quickly here in Galilee. In fact, in this very event here where he's rejected at Nazareth, they want to drive him off a cliff. All right? And... Human praise may be very fickle. Human praise may, may be lauding your glory one minute and then turning, ooh, vicious, vicious knives the very next minute, see. And so we want to be very cautious. You can, you can acknowledge praise when it's given, but you always want to have the divine viewpoint that recognizes where the praise belongs in the first place so that praise doesn't puff up. See, the person receiving the praise gets all full of himself as if he had something to do with it. Okay, and very important that we recognize this. I think we already saw it in John 2 where uh, he wasn't entrusting himself to those that were that were getting all excited about his miracles there in Jerusalem. He had a discernment to uh, provide a, a distance there. And so here again, we find patterns that we can imitate in our own dispensation, in our own ministries, uh, universally praised all right, thankful for it. I mean, it's better than being condemned, <laughs> you know. I'd rather be praised than, than uh, crucified. But at the same time, recognize that these same people will be calling for your head seemingly on the, you know, at the drop of a hat. All right, doesn't take long. <laughs> Remarkable. And, and, you know, it's amazing. The people that have been so forthcoming with all these praises and all this thankfulness and oh this teaching is wonderful and oh you're the you're the greatest teacher we've ever found and then next week they're going to a different church (laughs) and so you just kind of smile and develop a relaxed mental attitude you don't get worked up about it and i just tell the lord i say well guess now i'm second best (laughs) however that works and now they've moved on to something else you know and praise him until something else comes up and move on to somebody else see all right his teaching was universally praised. The uh, doxodomenos is an interesting participle in the sense that it's hard to understand. Is it related to the teaching or is it related to him personally? And um, I think the, the best understanding of it is that it was him personally, but it was um, with respect to the teaching that was taking place. So however way you handle that, I've, I've read so many I mean, countless pages where they try to determine, okay, was it the teaching or was it the person being praised? Well, whichever way you take it, even if it was the person, the motivation for the praise was the fact that he was teaching. So I think sometimes they split hairs over things that really don't need to be argued. 
But we also want to notice that he developed a pattern, a custom to his teaching. And we spot this in verse 16. He came to Nazareth where he had been brought up, and as was his custom, he entered the synagogue on the Sabbath and stood up to read. He developed a pattern. The Bible uses the word custom to his teaching. And there's nothing necessarily wrong with that. As you develop in your ministry, you will develop things that you just grow comfortable with. You will fall into patterns. You will fall into customs. If you get involved with, with uh, anything, you get involved with a child evangelism approach. You get involved with uh, uh, any gospel ministry. You get involved with a Sunday school minister and so forth. You will find the Lord starts to shape you. The Lord starts to... Um, mold you into these areas for service and you start to uh, find, you know, you develop habits, you develop customs. Is that a negative thing? Not always. Some people think it is, you know, say, oh, well, you know, you're in a rut. Well, wait a minute. If it works, work it, you know, different things. And, and, you know, it's funny, different pastors you study under, they've all got their little habits, they've all got their little idiosyncrasies and different things, and you just, you know, you put up with it and say, okay, that's just the way it is, you know. <laughs> Developed a pattern or a custom to his teaching. Some people get very reactionary to the different habits or customs and practices. Well, why does the pastor do this? Bugs me to death that he does this. Okay. <laughs> Jesus did. Jesus developed patterns and habits. You're going to criticize him? How come he's always going into the synagogue? Why doesn't he do something else? All right. Now, let's observe the message that he delivers here in Nazareth. In the Nazareth synagogue, Jesus read a selection from Isaiah and then proclaimed that selection to be presently fulfilled. In the Nazareth synagogue, Jesus read a selection from Isaiah and then proclaimed that selection to be presently fulfilled. Jesus read a selection from Isaiah. We're going to look at it here in a moment. And then proclaimed that selection to be presently fulfilled. This was the methodology of the day. This was the methodology that Jesus followed. I find it remarkable how they were expository preachers of the text. That they would open the scroll to the place where it had been left off in their last Bible class. And they would read a selection. They would mark that place. They would roll up the scroll. They would then begin to teach or expound upon that portion that was read. And so it was a systematic, verse-by-verse, biblical approach to teaching the Word of God. It was not a sermonic approach. It was not a topical homily approach. They just, you know, where they gather together and the, the guy with all the teeth and the hair gets up there and he says, today we're going to speak on whatever, devotion. And he gives a homily or he gives a, a very sermon-based, you know, little ditty on a subject and makes you feel better about yourself and then asks you to support whatever you can afford and what you can't afford and don't you love Jesus more than that and that kind of thing. The methodology was one based upon systematic Bible teaching. 
And so Jesus reads a selection from Isaiah and then proclaims that selection to be presently fulfilled. Remarkably enough, it is a short reading. The readings tended to be longer than just the couple of verses that he read. But the application being so pertinent, he stops the reading short, rolls up the scroll, sits down and starts to teach and explain what those verses were all about. And I find that remarkable as well, because some people that like a biblical approach would much rather do a larger chunk, like take a whole chapter and give a one hour message and then move on to the next chapter. Okay? Jesus takes a verse and a half and then sits down and develops a series of messages based upon that. So. Let's examine it here. He says in verse 16, he came to Nazareth where he had been brought up. Where he'd been nurtured, where he'd been fed, where he'd been tended, where he'd been raised. It's a shepherding word. And this is where he'd been shepherded. This is where his parents had fed him and nurtured him. And if he was a plant, he'd use this for, you know, watered him and different things. Um, And as was his custom, he entered the synagogue on the Sabbath and stood up to read. Now, he'd been doing this throughout Galilee. Now he comes to his own hometown. And the book of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him, and he opened the book and found in the place where it was written. See, and this is where the previous Sabbath message had left off with Isaiah 60, and now it's hit, now he goes into the synagogue, and now the scroll is opened up, and now it picks up where last, the last message had been left off, and here he is. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set free those who are oppressed, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. And he closed the book, gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed upon him. And he began to say to them, this then initiates his verbal messages, his teaching content based upon what he had read. Now, we're going to put these up here in parallel. Well, let me just give it to you under subpoint A. Luke 4, 18 and 19 equals Isaiah 61, verse 1 and 2A. Verse 1 and 2A. And the annotation 2A is a little deceptive. Um, because... That might connote half the verse, you know, if you think about 2A and 2B. In reality, verse 2 should be divided into thirds, in which case there's a 2A, a 2B, and a 2C. And so what we have here is not a verse and a half, we have a verse and a third. Luke 4, verses 18 and 19 equals Isaiah 61, 1 and a third. That might be the better way to annotate that. Verse 1 and a third of verse 2. Luke four eighteen and 19 equals Isaiah 61, 1 and a third. 1 and a third. See, I think the, the, um, the shortcomings of breaking your A's and your B's down is you don't really know if it's equal to half the verse or however many parts there are. In this, in this sense, there's, there's 2A, there's 2B, and there's 2C. Other verses might only have an A and a B. Other verses might have an A, B, C, and D if it's a four-part uh, section of poetry or what have you, if it's a very long verse. And so the annotation through 2A does not entirely communicate. Isaiah 61, 1 and a third might be the best way to render that. Now, if you can, just join me back in Isaiah 61 and we'll examine it. 
and uh, have the opportunity to put these up here side by side. And I'll even enlarge the text force here. I don't normally keep it that large, but for projection purposes, it would be helpful. All right. Isaiah 61, the spirit of the Lord God is upon me. Interesting phrase, the Lord God, um, Yahweh Elohim, or actually Adonai Yahweh. And uh, we did a little bit of work on that in the Ezekiel series. The spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord, that's Jehovah, has anointed me to bring good news to the afflicted. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to captives and freedom to prisoners, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. But you'll notice that's not the end of verse 2. And the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn, to grant those who mourn in Zion, giving them a garland instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the mantle of praise instead of a spirit of fainting, so that we'll be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that He may be glorified. And it goes on, verse 4, Then they will rebuild the ancient ruins. They will raise up the former devastations. They will repair the ruined cities, the desolations of many generations. Strangers will stand and pasture your flocks, and foreigners will be your farmers and your vine dressers. But you will be called the priests of the Lord. You will be spoken of as ministers of our God. You will eat the wealth of the nations, and in their riches you will boast. Instead of your shame, you will have a double portion. Oh, that's so important particularly in our recent conversations we've had in ecclesiology and episcopology and the supporting of a pastor teacher by a local church. And what does it mean that, that um, the uh, ruling elders, the ones who rule well and work hard at preaching and teaching, should be worthy of double honor, double portion, see? Um, here we have the, an Old Testament foundation for that. Because they're ministering in the spiritual realm to these Gentile nations, they have an expectation of being uh, fed and financially supported by those who are uh, benefiting from their spiritual ministry. Instead of your shame, you'll have a double portion. Instead of humiliation, they will shout for joy over their portion. Therefore, they will possess a double portion in their land. Everlasting joy will be theirs. Anyway, without reading through the rest of this, do you have the understanding that this is, um, it goes on down through verse 11, that this is uh, second advent? <laughs> you got the understanding that this is looking ahead to the millennium. All right. You and I are, are very, very blessed because our teaching is is um, grounded in a dispensational framework that we recognize that God has an ongoing plan and program of the ages that is going from alpha to omega is headed towards the ultimate glorification of Jesus Christ, uh, the fullness of times. We understand that God is accomplishing these things in different portions and in different ways and so we can rightly divide the word of truth and we're told to rightly divide the word of truth and uh, any ministry or bible teaching that fails to um, present a passage in this dispensational framework is not being fair to the text and they're not being imitators of jesus christ because you and i just observed how he stood up in a synagogue in nazareth 
and he read from a scroll, and he read Isaiah 61.1, and he read one-third of Isaiah 61.2, and he stopped reading. He read to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord, and he stopped reading. He did not read about the day of vengeance at Second Advent. He didn't read about the um, comforting of mourning and, and the things of, uh, that are looking forward to Second Advent and the millennial blessings, starting with vengeance, because the millennium doesn't happen without vengeance. Millennium doesn't happen without Armageddon. It doesn't happen with him going forth to tread the winepress of the uh, wrath of God. So as we go back to Luke 4, you just look at it there side by side. He quotes it. The spirit of the Lord is upon me because he anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set free those who are oppressed, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. And he closed the book. He closed the book, gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all the synagogue were fixed on him. Well, you would expect so because um, <laughs> you have certain expectations. See, uh, you guys have certain expectations. You you got here at, at well, prayer meeting was at nine. You got here at 10 o'clock for Bible class. You sat down. You expected that this message was going to go about an hour because they always go about that length of time. You expected that that uh, that I was going to be teaching the Bible for that period because you've this is the expectation. See, and it would be very different if I got up here. I read a verse and a half or a verse and a third. And then I close my Bible and I walk over here and I sit down. I pull the chair up and I start to do something different. Something you weren't expecting. All right. Does that mean there's something wrong with it? No, it's just different. It's got your attention. And they're captivated here. Their attention is fixed on him. And uh, this, is, this has been happening in the various places. And we don't know. We know that he was in Cana because that's where he met with the uh, the uh, Basilus, uh, the Basilicos and the circumstances there. We don't know what other towns he went to between Cana and Nazareth, but now all of a sudden he's in Nazareth. But we know there was more than just simply Cana because news about him spread throughout the surrounding district. He was uh, teaching in their synagogues, plural, multiple synagogues, praised by all. So he'd been going to a variety of places. And every place he's gone, the the message has been praised. Now he comes to Nazareth. And now the audience is once again captivated. And it's interesting. He said he began to say to them, today the scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Now he said more than that. That wasn't his entire message, but that was the gist of his message. All right. The uh, the. I like the way the New American Standard says he began to say to them, and it shows the the aggressive nature of this verb, that this was the inception of his speaking, this was the beginning of his message, but it's not designed to be a full quote verbatim of everything he had to say. It just summarizes everything he had to say. He was describing to them that the verse and a third that he read is being fulfilled presently by the first advent of Jesus Christ. All right, and that the remainder of that Isaiah passage was going to wait. The remainder of that Isaiah passage was going to be a future development. All were speaking well of him and wondering at the gracious words which were falling from his lips. 
And they were saying, is this not Joseph's son? All right. A little bit different from the praise he'd received elsewhere. The praise that's mentioned in verse 15, a little bit different when we look at the Nazareth reaction in uh, verse 22. All right. Uh, back to the outline point. I didn't give you point B yet. In the Nazareth synagogue, Jesus read a selection from Isaiah and then proclaimed that selection to be presently fulfilled today at this time. Presently, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Gave you the equivalency there of Luke four with Isaiah 61. Then sub point B, the portion of Isaiah omitted by Jesus is second advent in application. That would be Isaiah 61 to parts B and C through verse 11. Isaiah 61 to parts B and C through verse 11 is second advent application. All of that starting with vengeance, comforting, rebuilding ruins. All of that is the inception of the millennial reign and the restoration of Israel following the great tribulation of Israel, following their almost total obliteration and destruction. See, a remnant was preserved, but much of Israel is is just laid waste in the tribulational wars, in the the, uh, various stages of Armageddon. In the wrath of Satan expressed through Antichrist, vented upon the Jewish people. And so he does not read that portion of the text because his message for them is on the present fulfillment and on where they are and what is expected of them in terms of the kingdom of heaven being at hand. All right, the third observation. Although other Galileans were praising his spirit-empowered and grace-oriented teaching... The Nazarenes could not overlook his earthly family and upbringing. Although other Galileans were praising his spirit-empowered and grace-oriented teaching, that will always gather people's attention. Spirit-empowered, grace-oriented teaching. The Nazarenes could not overlook his earthly family and upbringing. And by Nazarenes, you understand, residents of Nazareth. All right? That's not their church denomination. <laughs> All right? Nazarenes today are a offshoot of free Methodists that roughly are Arminian theology and don't believe in eternal security. All right? A uh, very legalistic approach because they're trying to secure their salvation. This will be some of the most devout believers you'll ever meet. They'll bend over backwards for you. Yeah, the supervisor in the sheriff's department was a Nazarene great guy. Loved him in the Lord, respected him very highly. He was widowed and raised uh, three sons by himself. Um, regret the fact that I never could communicate eternal security effectively. No, these are not those Nazarenes. These Nazarenes, the biblical Nazarenes, are residents of Nazareth. All right. Just like, you know, you might be an Austinite or you might be a uh, uh, Lockhartonian or whatever, you know, a Seattleite or uh, whatever, wherever you live. 
All right. They're Nazarenes because they live in Nazareth. What's a round rock? A round rocker? I don't know. What's that? <laughs> Something. All right. It's interesting the the spirit the power of the spirit in verse 14 and the praise that it generated the grace that that is referred to here in verse 22 gracious words falling off his lips you know a, a grace oriented message grabs people's attention if you've spend any kind of time in legalistic churches, then you get to a local church and the teaching reflects grace. It's like a breath of fresh air. It's like, ah, grace. See, as opposed to legalism or law or anything that's minus grace. And much of what will come time and time again when Jesus ministers and the people are just stunned, they'll say, we never heard this before. It's like, you know, our, our teachers don't teach this way. He's teaching as one with authority. And he didn't have to depart from grace and the, and the power of the Spirit to teach with authority. Sometimes you think that these Pharisees, which were not in grace, which were not Spirit-filled, uh, were pushing their own authority. And we're going to deal with some of that in these upcoming conflicts between the Lord and these, uh, these other teachers. But the Nazarenes could not overlook his earthly family and his upbringing. It's, it's remarkable. They don't, they don't testify to the Holy Spirit, even though He is present. They don't testify to the grace, even though they observed it. Their comments are with respect to His earthly family. Is this not Joseph's son? Is this not Joseph's son? And that statement itself... Is not necessarily a negative statement, but Jesus understood it to be a negative statement by virtue of how he then follows up with it in verse 23. Because he said to them, no doubt you will quote this proverb to me, physician, heal yourself. Whatever we heard was done at Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. He immediately recognizes that they have uh, ulterior motives for... Uh, identifying him as Joseph's son. They have expectations based upon the fact that they knew him way back when. All right? And he's going to tell them here very bluntly, you're getting no special treatment, no special favors. There's no, um, there's no benefit to being a Nazarene simply because you live in the town where I grew up. And he's going to illustrate a couple of different ways to point that out. And really, this then becomes a picture of a much larger problem, that is the racial arrogance and pride that all the Jews had. Because they were all impressed with themselves just for being Jews. Saying, well, you know, Abraham's our father. We're the Jewish people. We're the chosen people. And by the time we get to John chapter 8, Jesus is saying, well, you better do the deeds of Abraham. Don't say, don't think to yourself that you have Abraham for your father, so everything's going great. I say to you, you're of your father, the devil. You desire to do the things of your father. It's very confrontational there. And in reality, it's this early rejection, and then there's a later rejection, but these, these very finite rejections and uh, messages as it pertains to the Nazarenes really typify the arrogance that, that all the Jews we're subject to, we're vulnerable towards, all right? They can't expect favoritism by virtue of being Nazarenes. 
and that holds true in a larger sense, all the Jewish people can't expect favoritism because they're Jewish. See, they must place their faith in Christ. They must um, humble themselves under the teaching of the word of God and so forth. But they couldn't get over his earthly family and his upbringing. Point four, Jesus concluded his message that day with an admonishment that the Nazarenes could not expect special privileges because he was one of them. Jesus concluded his message that day with an admonishment that the Nazarenes could not expect special privileges because he was one of them. Luke 4, verses 23 through 28. He concluded his message that day. (laughs) You know, if he would have just stuck with Isaiah, he could have ended with praise. (laughs) He could have ended his Nazareth uh, sermon like all of his other Galilean sermons and he'd be praised and and things would be going great. And he could have left them with the impression that that they could expect neat things because this Nazarene was uh, gaining celebrity. But he didn't leave them without impression. He didn't leave them with a false impression that would have done them a disservice to let them go on in that ignorance, to let them go on in that assumption that that uh, they had neat things in store for them. He said to them, no doubt you will quote this proverb to me. This is an omniscience at work. The Old Testament prophets were often given insight into what the motivations of their audience uh, might have been physician heal yourself that's a proverb that comes up later on too by the way even in terms of the taunting when he was on the cross whatever we heard was done at capernaum do here in your own hometown as well see this is your hometown do those miracles impress us do good things for us you know you healed uh, the 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 kid the basilicos's kid you know, take care of us. We got sickness here too. We got problems here too. Take care of us. He said, Truly I say to you, no prophet is welcome in his hometown. <laughs> you know, it's not that they were happy to have him there, they wanted his miracles. They wanted him to do things for them. Remember, there's a crowd that wants to do things to him, and then there's a crowd that wants things from him, and that's this group. And when they don't get from him what they want from him, then they turn into those who want to do things to him. (laughs) See how that works? And he says, truly, I say, I'm running out of time here, but let's just look through these verses. Truly, I say to you, no prophet is welcome in his hometown. I say to you, in truth, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah, when the sky was shut up for three years and six months, when a great famine came over all the land. Yet Elijah was sent to none of them, but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon, to a woman who was a widow. So you think hometown favoritism counts for something? What about all those poor widows in Israel when that famine was going on? How come Elijah didn't minister to any of them? Or even all of them, or most of them, or some of them? He he was not sent to any of them. But this Gentile woman, Zarephath, um, Zarephath's not a name, that's a place, uh, to a woman who was a widow. (laughs) Hometown favoritism, you think that counts for something? Didn't count for Elijah. Or how about all those lepers in Israel in the time of Elisha the prophet? None of them was cleansed, but only Naaman the Syrian. 
think hometown counts for anything? How about believers walking in faith, trusting in the Lord to provide for them? Naaman was trusting in the Lord. He got saved because of it. This widow trusting in the Lord. She was saved. Her son was saved because of it. It's about faith in Christ. It's not about hometown favoritism. It's not about special privileges. It's not about connections. You start thinking in terms of connections. You start thinking in terms of wheeling and dealing. That's all cosmos. Cosmos wisdom. This world's wisdom. It's not, you know, what you know is who you know. These various connections that you can make, you know. I've had people ask me in different contexts. And they, and they say it sort of tongue-in-cheek, but you wonder how much of that really is reflected in their thinking. You know, they, guys in the scout troop or guys on the baseball field or guys different places, not in this church, but outside of this church. Like, hey, pastor, you know, put in a good word for me. Would you say a prayer? You know, like... I've got connections. I've got a closer, you know, I've got a, a, I'm in tight with Jesus kind of thing. You know, we're, we're right there. You know, and if I just drop a line, then that's going to bear some weight as opposed to these other guys who they, you know, they admit, oh, I'm not in church much and, you know, I don't really know Jesus that well. And they say these things kind of tongue in cheek with a little grin, with a little thought, you know, can you, do, but how much of the reality is behind that bit of humor see because if there's no truth to it at all then the humor makes no sense but the element of truth behind the humor is really an admission of what an admission of well you know i'm not as close to the lord as i ought to be it's also an admission that people are used to thinking in terms of connections in terms of who do you know and how can we work this see how can we connect the angles how can we network how can we do all this other stuff it's all cosmos wisdom And Jesus Christ is smashing that cosmos wisdom here saying, hey, I'm a Nazarene, but that doesn't mean you guys are are just got a free ride on all this other stuff or automatic miracles, everything else. In fact, the next time he comes back, he's his his miracle uh, potential is greatly diminished. He could do practically no miracles at all, just a couple of healings, a little bit here and there. But the you talk about the, the quenching of the Holy Spirit on a geographic basis. That's what happens and due to the, the, uh, the um, hardness of heart and the negative volition and the, uh, the rejection there at Nazareth. All right, we will pick this up in one week. Um, there is more to do on this. There, like I said, there's only five points to study for this text, but we just don't have the time today to go back to the Elijah incident and the Elisha incident. I want to make sure we're familiar on those i think first and second kings are parts of the old testament that we're real rusty on anyway and uh we'll we'll look at those um not only for this lesson but elijah and elisha are critically important for us to look at as types of christ all right the role of elijah elisha coming along with a double portion of his spirit and the two of them together elijah and elisha are a portrait of christ in an amazing way Uh, And we'll study some of those things as well. Father, thank you for the truth of your word. We thank you for your faithfulness. And Father, at this time, we also do want to lift up Michael Wise. His surgery is scheduled for this very hour. We uh, entrust him to your care. Our trust is not in the doctors and their wisdom or skill, but we are asking for you to supply wisdom and skill. And at the same time, Father, we're resting confidently in your faithful provision, all things working together for good to those who love you and those who are called according to your purpose. We thank you and we praise you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.